Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 108, King Noah. And just like that, the affairs of the kingdom changed. Welcome back to the Sister Scriptorians podcast. I love doing this with you. I hope you love it too. I totally have this image of us. We're friends and we're just, we're sitting around on our couches, our comfy couches, maybe with a comfy blanket with the scriptures in our laps and we are just learning together and we are just trying to figure out heart to heart how to learn, liken, and lift one another so that we can all stay strong together. I hope, I hope you feel that connection with me because that's what I strive to provide for you each and every week. Your time is valuable, and I appreciate the time you give this podcast. It isn't a far stretch to say that for the past few weeks, we've been talking about leadership as a subtopic. We've seen how blessed a people can be when they live under a righteous king like King Mosiah or his father, King Benjamin. King Mosiah, he was a seer, a high gift given to him by God to to be a benefit to his people. Through his faith and also their faith, miracles could take place. We then studied the ups and downs of King Zenith, where he acknowledges that there were times in which they were slow to remember their God. And their experiences reflected that. Contention, the shedding of blood, famine, and other sore afflictions came upon his people when they were slow to remember the Lord. But all in all, King Zenith, I believe, I believe he was a good king. He set up his people to remember God, to remember how their fathers had been delivered, and to turn to the Lord, especially when their enemies were coming upon them. And the people of Zenith, they were made strong, miraculously strong. And in the strength of the Lord, they went forth and were able to drive the Lamanites out of their land with tremendous loss of Lamanite lives and a miraculous preservation of Nephite lives. But then it came time for Zenith to step down as king, and he conferred the kingdom upon Noah. And the scriptures say that Noah was one of his sons, and I'm not sure if Noah was his oldest son or not. But in verse 1 of Mosiah chapter 11, it is clear that Noah does not walk in the ways of his father. And just like that, the affairs of the kingdom change under his leadership. It's almost dizzying how fast a kingdom can decline. It can happen more quickly than I think you and I realize. So let's talk about it. First, I want you to think about What makes a good leader? Temporally, spiritually, what makes them someone that you want to follow? Someone that you want to lead you? And I'm going to use the pronoun of him, but of course, women are also great leaders. And after reading Mosiah chapter 11, this is what came to my mind as far as important questions to consider about a man's leadership. What is his moral compass like? 
For example, what is his standard like? The one in which he bases all of his decisions off of. What or who is he loyal to? Does he answer to a higher power? Where does he draw the line between right and wrong? Where does he draw from in order to decide what is right and wrong? What does his moral code, his moral compass tell him and where does it take him? Number two, what is his vision? What direction is he going to take the people he leads? For example, what will the people look like not only during his leadership, but once his leadership comes to an end? Three, what does your leader place the most value in? Where is his attention directed towards? What's important to him? Where is he going to devote his time, his attention, his resources to? And then finally, What is the character of the people that he promotes to assist him in all of this? Like, what's his inner circle like? My assumption is that in some way, they will be a reflection of him, of the true him. This list could go on and on. And as you study chapter 11, I encourage you to see what other questions you can draw out that should be considered and discerned when you are given the chance next time to either select or get to know your next leader. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that Mormon included this portion of Nephite history of all the records that he included, of all of the groups of dissenters He preserved this group's history. What a great opportunity that we have to discern, to compare and to contrast righteous leadership and wicked kings and the effects that their leadership really truly has upon their people. So let's look at Noah's moral compass. Well, it isn't like his father Zenith's who wasn't a prophet, but I can see that Zenith tried to be a good king and to do well by his people. He taught them to be industrious, to work hard, to take care of their own. He organized them and he provided operations that were necessary to make weapons to protect themselves. He had the women spinning linen for cloth. The people tended their flocks. They grew crops. They were prosperous. He valued, and therefore they valued, industry. He valued self-sufficiency, and his people reflected that. I believe we see evidence that he valued goodness and honesty. It's why he didn't want to destroy the Lamanites and why he trusted the Lamanite king's word of cooperation. He valued also remembering their forefathers. It's it's why they went back to the land in the first place. And he did teach his people to remember God. He also had the humility to connect the outpouring of strength or the lack thereof when the people remembered or they forgot God. He didn't blame their circumstances, but he drew a direct line from what they were experiencing to whether or not they were drawing upon God. He also had priests called to to do the work to bring the people unto God. We know this because Noah would let go his father's priests, and he would call new priests that possessed his level of morality. 
In verse 2, we're told that Noah did not keep the commandments of God, but he did walk after the desires of his own heart. And so what did his heart desire? His heart desired many wives, and he also had many concubines. And this is incredible to me. This decline that occurred so fast. I don't know how they got there in one generation, but they did. And these actions of Noah's along with others caused the people to commit sin and to do that which was abominable in the sight of the Lord. They too committed whoredoms and all manner of wickedness. How could a people change so quickly? In 40 some odd years since Zenith and his people had left Zarahemla, how did we get here? to an abandonment of the morals in which God expected his people to have. I don't know, perhaps this was already happening under Zenith's rule. Perhaps the original expedition drew away those who were seeking something different. I'm not sure. But I would propose that there is the explanation that the flattering, lying, and the vain words of their leaders greatly infected the people's hearts. Flattery is different than compliments. Compliments that someone gives you to build you up. Such compliments that open our eyes to our goodness, that are given in sincerity and love from the heart, and they're given to encourage an individual. And these compliments can give us courage to see ourselves more capable than we saw ourselves previously, so that we can strive higher and meet the Lord's standards. No, flattery is different. Flattery, lying, and vain words or words that don't produce results can come in two different ways. Maybe more, but this is what I thought of as I tried to ponder on the rapid damage that flattery can have on a society. They can either be promises of ease, mistruths that lull us into comfort, help us to let down our guard, encourage us to not take life so seriously. It's the whole eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die lies that swarm around us. The flattery that it's okay to commit a little sin. You'll be beaten with just a few stripes. If you have it, flaunt it. Do you. Who are others to judge you? Everything that appeals to the natural man to not submit, to not humble himself, or to be meek or patient, and definitely a promotion of self-love and self-interest, and not really looking beyond that. When you are experiencing that or hearing these sorts of things, know you are being flattered by your leaders. But then I think there's also the opposite extreme too. It's the flattering that gets us riled up. The Book of Mormon would use the phrase stirred up in anger or to take action that would promote the agenda of others and to take on their perspective and to take on their feelings as if it is our burden to carry. The flattery that gives us only two options, either you're with us or you're against us. The flattery and the lies that say, if you are compassionate, tolerant, loving, or accepting, then you would agree with us. 
And if you don't agree with me, then you are the problem. You aren't, therefore, compassionate, tolerant, loving, or accepting, and you are a threat. These sorts of flattery arguments that are to sway us or to cause an emotional stir up cause anxiety because as our best selves, we are everything good and we are horrified to be seen otherwise. Flattery makes it an us versus them. It hits us at our our desire to belong. It promotes a collective think. And if you don't think like us, then you belong to them. And we're against them. And we will defeat them, meaning you. And you don't want to be threatened or vulnerable. And so you take on these feelings or this guilt or this shame that really doesn't belong to you in the first place. So whether it's flattery, lies, and vain words that give us comfort or it gives us discomfort, it hits our core fears of failing, of not being good enough or worthy enough, or it hits our fear of not having life as we think it should be, and it taps into our pride or the natural man versus the submission and the humility of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So beware of flattery. The use of flattery, I believe, helped this society quickly descend into wickedness and therefore become threatened by bondage and destruction. Next, what was Noah's vision? As a leader, as a king, what was his vision? And what would his people look like once he was all finished? The choices that Noah made, the compass that he chose to follow, the abandonment of God's commandments and the pursuit of his own desires, it had a trickle-down effect upon his people. It rested upon them. We don't like to admit that, do we? Since I was in high school, I have heard arguments in regards to, for example, someone like our president, that it doesn't matter about their personal life. It just matters whether or not they are capable to lead the country. Okay, but where are they capable of leading us to? Have we asked that question? And are we wanting to be led there? Have you asked yourself that question? And at what cost? John C. Maxwell, I guess he's a popular leadership speaker, said that a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. I don't know anything about his work, but I like that perspective. Noah knew, he knew the way he desired to go, and he went that way, and he showed the way to the people he reigned over. Which way is our leader going? That's a question we should ask. Like Noah, the people, they too commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness. Like him, they too became idolatrous because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and his priests. And like him, they too became wine-bibbers, meaning they drank too much wine, and a synonym would be alcoholic. All of this behavior and much more came at the expense of the people. For example, to me, it appears that this group of Nephites were in bondage long before the Lamanites actually became their taskmasters. King Noah laid a tax of 
one-fifth upon his people, one-fifth of all they possessed. His people labored hard to support Noah and his wives and his concubines, and also his priests and their wives and their concubines. And so while his people labored to support their king and his court, they also labored to support what Noah valued most, where he placed his attention. They supported their king in his leisure. They parted with one-fifth of what they had so that he could have his carnal appetites satisfied. So he could be enticed by riches and exquisite workmanship, the building up of the kingdom's infrastructures, and his pleasures. The taxes of the people built for him a spacious palace and a throne of fine wood decorated in gold and silver and precious things. And for his priests, he built seats that were elevated above all the other seats, ornamented with pure gold and that had breastwork that they could rest their bodies and their arms upon while they spoke their lying and their vain words to the people. Doesn't that just drip with ew? (laughs) In fact, he built many elegant and spacious buildings, all ornamented with fine work of wood and precious things. And then all along with his vineyards and his wine presses that he built so that the wine could be made in abundance, he also built buildings in Shalom and a tower that overlooked Shalom, but then also overlooked Shemlon where the Lamanites lived. And you'd think that the tower would be put to good use to prevent any attacks upon the people. His father, Zenev, had valiantly, even during the, that long stretch of peace that they had had, He kept his people diligent in laboring to equip and protect themselves against their enemy. Now, I'm not sure of all the goings on with Noah and his people, if they were still diligently ensuring their safety. But because of their living and because we do know the mysteries of God, we know that they were no longer operating in the strength of the Lord. They were operating in their own strength. And the Lamanites began to come up upon them in small numbers at first and slay them right there in their fields while they were taking care of their flocks. And their king, King Noah, he sent guards, but not enough. In fact, the Lamanites killed the guards and drove the people's flocks out of the land and they just exercised their hatred upon the Nephites. Fortunately, the king woke up from his stupor and he sent his army to drive the Lamanites out of the land. And then the people rejoiced in their spoil because of their own victory. The scriptures say they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. And what might this look like? Well, I want you to remember the four C's of pride. And I believe three of them would definitely apply to the situation. Contention, conceit, and competition, and everything that would accompany these behaviors. The scriptures say that they boasted in their own strength, which sounds like conceit and a lack of remembrance of God and his contribution. And they delighted in blood and the shedding of Lamanite blood. And I'm not sure why Mormon made a distinction here 
between delighting in blood and in the shedding of Lamanite blood. I wish I were more of a scholar, but I can see that competition swelled in their hearts, along with conceit and overpowering contention that intoxicated them with anger and with revenge. But it's the end of verse 19 in which Mormon contributes all of this wickedness to the wickedness of their king and their priests. Which leads me to my final observation or question about leaders. What is the character of the people he promotes to assist him in his endeavors? Because again, I believe that in some way, they're reflecting either his attributes or what he values. I'm not sure of the caliber of priests that his father chose, but at the beginning of Noah's reign, he released those priests and consecrated new ones in their stead, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. And he picked those that would live as he lived. I don't know, maybe they were even some of his buddies that he spent his riotous living with before he was even made king. I don't know. But these priests, they adapted to the leisure activities that their king liked to spend his time doing in riotous living with his wives and his concubines. And so did also his priests spend their time with harlots. When you live in a society where eat, drink, and be merry is your jam, well, when you introduce a guy like Abinadi, who comes in telling you to repent of your abominations, your wickedness and whoredoms, well, that would be like fighting words, wouldn't it? And remember, the people delighted in the shedding of blood. And so did their king. When your leadership places so much value on pleasure-seeking and eye-catching monuments to be told that God would visit you in his anger if you didn't repent, well, this would be a threat to your pleasure buzz. When you have taken pride in your strength and delight in shedding the blood of your brethren, to be told that you're going to be afflicted by your enemies, well, that could sound insulting. Or even laughable when you're told that you will be in bondage to those enemies, that they'll smite you and no one but God would be able to deliver you. And how bothersome would it be for Abinadi, a prophet of God, to make such a big deal to repent and to cry unto God. And then to be told, when you do, God will be slow to hear you. And if you don't repent, he won't hear those prayers and he won't deliver you. We know the people were wroth with Abinadi and they tried to kill him, but the Lord delivered him. And to be wroth with a prophet of God who is teaching repentance leads me to consider two things. One, either the people knew in their hearts that he just might be right. That somewhere in them remembered what they had once been taught. Something feared that he had exposed them and their pride just would not let him win or be right. Or two, they were past feeling. Regardless, Noah's reaction only justified where the people were at. Who is a Benedite to judge us? He asks. 
Who is the Lord to bring such affliction? Really, Noah? And then this intention of the kings. Bring Abinadi here and I will kill him. Again, what is your leader's moral compass? What is his vision? What or in who does he place value in? And who does he surround himself with? According to Noah, Abinadi was deserving of death for saying such warnings. Abinadi was accused of stirring up the people to anger with one another and for raising contentions among Noah's people. Noah promised to slay Abinadi for proposing righteous living, for testifying of God, for speaking the truth of God, for giving the people an opportunity to think in a different way, for encouraging the people to repent, to change their mind, to change their knowledge, to change their spirit, to change their breath. The eyes of the people were blinded, and they and their king hardened their hearts against Abinadi, and he then became a wanton man. So learn, liken, and lift. What can we take away from this chapter? We, Sister Scriptorians, you know this. We are living in perilous times, and truthfully, I don't know. In the secular world, I don't know if we have a hope of ever being governed by a righteous leader again. But we will always have a prophet of God on the earth. The prophet of God's prophetic words that if we are to have any hope of sifting through the myriad of voices and the philosophies of men that attack truth, we must learn to receive revelation. Because in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. So true. I see it's not only value, but it's necessity. Our leaders of our societies might find themselves very much involved in the same sort of abominations that Noah and his court were involved in. But we mustn't. We must resist their abominations from trickling down and resting upon us. We must fine-tune and rely upon our moral compass that we develop as we learn to receive personal revelation, the standard that we bounce information off of so that we can discern truth from error. It's the principles that we live and die by. We must keep our vision fixed on who we desire to become, and whose name we have covenanted to take upon ourselves. It's more important now than ever before, I believe. We must intentionally spend our time and efforts in what we value and then build there. We value love. We value the human soul. We value the fruits of the spirit. We value religious freedom. We value our ancestors, we value repentance and the atonement of Jesus Christ, and we value agency. And finally, the people that we surround ourselves by are reflections of what's going on inside of us. 
or at least the direction that we're facing. We can learn, like it, and lift others without compromising the knowledge that we have of God, that He is our supreme creator and our upholder, that He is merciful, full of grace, slow to anger, and abundant in goodness, that He is not a respecter of persons, but He is a God of truth and cannot lie. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His purpose is one eternal round. And he is love. So, sister scriptorians, go and be the leader that emulates these things. Sister scriptorians, be the leader that Noah wasn't for his people. Your influence has far-reaching effects. If Noah could affect an entire kingdom, what can you do? Learn, like it, and lift with love. Beware of pride that takes you in the opposite direction, that leads you to have enmity towards your fellow men and with God. Be the leader that is strengthened by the upholder of all things, and then go and make a difference.